Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Five million more benefit claims in the United States continue to soar. Coronavirus controversy. China dismisses reports the pandemic began in a lab. And trialing treatments. The chief medical officer investigating President Trump's touted drug. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to all our first movers across the globe, as always. Great to have you with us. It's another day where the data and, of course, the lives behind that data tell the story. It's telling us that cases of coronavirus may be peaking in the United States and in key parts of Europe, even as the economic consequences continue to escalate. President Trump is set to unveil his plans for relaxing U.S. stay-at-home restrictions, even as multiple governors and business leaders say testing, testing and more testing is the key. For now, the latest on the U.S. jobs crisis, a further 5.2 million people filing for first-time benefits just in the last week. It was in line with expectations and it was actually less than we saw the week before, but it's still an astounding figure and there's more to come. It suggests that the U.S. is now close to losing all the jobs gained since the Great Recession. And it's happened in the space of a month. And it comes, of course, too, as the U.S. program to save small businesses and therefore jobs, the so-called PPP, runs out of money, with Congress still unable to agree on fresh funding. U.S. futures are modestly higher at this moment. Stocks fell sharply on Wednesday, though, after new reports showed historic declines in both U.S. factory activity and consumer spending data. And more of the banking giants beefed up their loan loss provisions, bracing for a historic number of defaults. Morgan Stanley, the last of the big banks to report today, setting aside an additional $400 million worth of cash. That's well over $20 billion for the major four banks this week. Consumer credit crunch. That's what that's telling me. Now, shares are higher in Europe, as you can see, as Germany announced it will begin easing lockdown restrictions next week. Over in Asia, stocks were mixed. Investors there, I think, are waiting the release of China's growth numbers for the first quarter. We're expecting the first decline in recorded history. Let's get right to the drivers because Richard Quest joins us now. Richard, there is so much we can talk about, but I do want to hone in on what we're seeing, the mounting numbers of people filing for first-time benefits in the United States. Some may have just been furloughed. Some may have just been fearful. But you can't hide from the fact that 22 million people are in that position and they're in it just in the last four weeks. Yes, and the numbers will continue in this sort of trend. 
I think the important thing, of course, is not the headline number, which is you know, frightening and worrying. It is these other numbers which we're getting business inventories, all the other things that we're talking about, retail sales, because they will indicate how many of those furloughed will be taken back on again when the economy opens. As you and I said at the very beginning of the week, these other numbers tell us what GDP will look like, what economic activity will look like in the second half of the year. And that is the crucial determinator for how many of this horrific number, 17, 18 million people who've lost their job, will be re-employed. It's not good, Julia. I can tell you, if you look at the numbers, it suggests that the, that, that, the re, that the reopening of the economies will be slow and steady. And, Julia, it could be 2022, I'm reading this morning, before the unemployment numbers get back to where they were. It's the critical point here because this is purposeful. This is what we're doing in shutting down the economy. It's what we can save yeah. and protect in the interim to have jobs in, in yeah. businesses in a position where they can rehire. Yes. To your point about 2022, last week we spoke to Jason Furman, former advisor to uh, President Obama, sure. and he said half are furloughed, he hopes, and can come back quite quickly, but it could take us five yeah. years to get back where we started. Yeah, that's... That's exactly the scenario that's going to play out. Think about it this way. Companies basically furloughed and laid off staff to shift them onto the government payrolls of unemployment. Immediately, some will be re-employed. I would say 30 to 60% of those people will come back almost immediately because the jobs are still there, the companies are still running. But the rest of them they are going to have to wait for economic activity to pick up again. It's awful. I hate describing people's livelihoods and people's lives as economic activity. But that's yeah. the world and that's the business we're in. They are going to have to wait until economies pick up before demand. Because the last thing companies will do, I'll leave you with this, the last thing companies will do will be take on workers that they fear they're not going to be able to keep or pay for. Yeah, I mean, this is at the crux of what we're saying. And when we bring it back again to the small yeah. businesses, it's not just about, about the United States. It's about other developed, in particular, economies, too. The small businesses are the lifeblood. They're half of employment here. If you don't protect them, if you don't get money out to them in the short term, and what we know right now is that the money's all but run out, um, you're exacerbating mm -hmm. the damage that's already being done. Yes, and that Small Business Administration, that loan programme. By the way, Julia, that loan programme was very poorly constructed. First of all, the money is going to run out. But secondly, small businesses had to apply for the money now because it might run out, but they don't need it. The reality is small businesses need that money as working capital when they reopen again. And they need that as a bridge until business picks up again. Instead, the federal government constructed it as an all or nothing now. So what's going to happen is companies have taken the loans, they'll burn through the money, they'll then lay off the staff, and then those grants will become loans because the staff have been laid off. It was poorly constructed, it was done in a hurry, and it's not yeah. enough money.
It was the best they could do. I have to say, though, the Small Business Administration, to give them credit, the chief tweeted this morning, oh, in yeah. less than 14 days, they've processed more than 14 years' yep. worth of loans. That gives you a sense of um, the scale, the pressure that they were under. But I agree with you. Bypassing them would have been the key. Maybe still is. Richard, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Now, as U.S. unemployment claims skyrocket, President Trump will unveil his plan to reopen the economy. Multiple governors, though, say their states are nowhere near that point yet. And business leaders say testing for COVID-19 is still inadequate and has to be dramatically increased before people can go back to work. John Harwood joins me from Washington. John, you and I were talking about this yesterday and predicting what that call with business leaders was was going to be like. And I think the message was consistent. We need more testing or our people aren't safe. What are we expecting from the president today? Do you think he changes his tune, perhaps, in light of what he's hearing? Well, I think at some point he's going to have to. Don't know if it will be today. That call was just yesterday, and the president's been talking about these guidelines all week. Uh, We know, as you indicated, Governors are ultimately going to make the decision, and they're going to make the decision based on public confidence, which is going to be based on what public health authorities say we need and what business leaders say we need. They all agree that it's testing, and so sooner or later, that issue is going to have to be dealt with, whether it's dealt with by governors in uh, cooperation with the federal government or whether it's uh, uh, done by uh, the President of the United States using the Defense Production Act or some other means of ramping up testing. In the meantime, I expect the president's going to be talking about uh, what some of the places with lesser case numbers, uh, the less densely populated states without the big uh, uh, metropolitan areas, uh, things that they might be able to do to ease up and get started again. The problem, of course, is that most economic activity in the United States is uh, conducted in large metropolitan areas. As a matter of fact, in states governed by Democrats, 24 out of the uh, 50 states, are home to 58% of the uh, economic activity in the United States. So uh, it's going to be difficult for the president to uh, uh, push this along on the basis of appealing to Republican governors in smaller Mm. states because people like Gavin Newsom in California and Andrew Cuomo in New York are ultimately going to be the decision makers. Such an important point. John, the other point, and we were just making it, and I was making it there with Richard, is getting more funding for the PPP, the Payment Protection Plan. What are we hearing about negotiations between the Democrats and the Republicans? They all, this had bipartisan support in the beginning. They know more money's needed. It's just the terms and conditions and what else is required in terms of cash to to keep the Democrats happy. Can they agree this this week? I think they can. Uh, Mm. There were talks last night between uh, Speaker Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Those talks are going to be continuing today. I think everyone is committed to getting more money in this program, and the fact that it's running out of money uh, already is an indication that, however, uh, you were talking with Richard about how it was designed. Whatever the design issues with the program, there is tremendous uh, appetite for this program. You know, the the real question, Julia, as we've talked about in previous settings, is uh, unemployment's now uh, north of 15 percent. Uh, we, we know there's going to be an endpoint at some point, whether there's a vaccine or a testing. The question is how much economic damage is incurred between now and that endpoint. And to shorten the endpoint, we need more testing. 
Uh, I think that the Congress is going to shovel more money out the door to try to sustain some of those businesses so that when we do get to the point we can reopen the economy, businesses are going to be there to employ the workers who are now laid off. Absolutely. They need money now. And at the heart of this is getting on top of the health crisis because we can't do anything without that. John Harwood, thank you so much once again. China dismisses a theory that COVID-19 originated from a Chinese laboratory, saying there's no proof. This comes after multiple sources told CNN that the U.S. government is looking into whether the virus actually came from a lab in Wuhan. David Culver is live in Shanghai with the latest. David, the, David, the um, great to have you with us. And the Chinese may be saying, look, there's no truth to this. But quite frankly, trust at this moment is in very short supply. What do we know? There, there's a lot of skepticism when it comes to how things are being handled here and how things were handled here initially. Now, with regards to the origin of this, we should preface it, Julia, by stating you know, what most medical experts are saying, and that is it's not believed to have originated in a lab. It's believed to have gone from that animal to human contact uh, and, and then spread from there, the initial transmission. But what, what we need to look at is what U.S. officials are investigating as one of many theories, and that is that it originated potentially in a lab in Wuhan. They don't believe it was part of any bioweapon experiments or, or work, and that it likely happened even on accident, if that's how it happened. Again, one of many theories that they're looking into, as you point out, the Chinese are pushing back against that and, and they are dismissing it quite quickly. That's coming from the Chinese foreign ministry today. And they suggest that they are only focused on the scientific aspect of all this. They're not gonna speculate beyond the science and how it started. Uh, they of course maintain that it started in a wet market in Wuhan, one that is now shut down. But it's also interesting to note that the same spokesperson, Julia, who was mentioning that they're not going to rely on anything but science is also an individual who a month ago was tweeting out that it may have been the U.S. Army that brought the virus to Wuhan. So there's a back and forth between the two countries that we see playing out quite strongly. Now, I, I want to go to the other big story uh, that's really getting a lot of attention here, and that has to come from, come from the Associated Press in particular. Now, they have a report that's based on what they characterize as a leaked memo from a confidential teleconference involving the head of China's National Health Commission. CNN has gone through the government's public report of that teleconference, which highlights the worries expressed by health officials to other leaders six days before officials here alerted the public. So here's what we know of what China knew and when. I can show you some timeline graphics. Starting back on December 8th, the Wuhan government notes the first patient symptoms of the then unknown virus. Nearly a month later, on January 3rd, Wuhan health officials stressed there is no obvious human-to-human -human transmission. On the same day, China notified the U.S. of the virus. Now, on January 7th, President Xi Jinping's first public awareness is made known and he ordered actions to be taken. A week later, on January 14th, going back to that teleconference, the government release says a sober understanding of the situation was made known to top government officials. They added that clustered cases suggest that human-to-human -human transmission is possible. That was the 14th. Here's the concern. Publicly, as late as January 19th, the Wuhan Health Commission said the outbreak was controllable and preventable, not contagious. The next day, a very different narrative. Leading health officials acknowledged cases of human-to-human -human transmission and even stressed that medical personnel had gotten infected. And of course, three days after that, 
Wuhan goes on lockdown. Now, China's foreign ministry states that in an open, transparent and responsible manner, China has kept the WHO in relevant countries updated on the outbreak. But, Julia, you've got to look at that timeline. And the six days in particular may not seem like a lot, but it was six days during what is the largest human migration each year, the Lunar New Year travel. And that's when people are coming together and the potential for exposure is massive. Yes. Those days were absolutely critical. Never mind what's happened since. Right. Mm. David, great work. Thank you so much for that. David Carver there. Now, the UK government is set to extend its lockdown curbs by weeks when the emergency committee meets later today. This is Downing Street comes under increasing pressure to outline its exit strategy from these emergency measures. Nick Payton Walsh is in London for us. Nick, great to have you with us. It's not what people want to hear, but the health crisis dictates at the same time an exit strategy of some sort is also required. What do we expect? Uh, Today we expect to some degree the measures Mm. to be continued for probably another three weeks. I have to say that would conflict to some degree with what officials refer to as the green shoots of the numbers we've been hearing over the past days. And I think the government here in a slight uh, dichotomy in that they need to try and suggest to people the measures so far have had success and are indeed seeing, we heard yesterday, 2,000 spare capacity plus hospital beds. So the free UK health service here, the NHS, is not actually over capacity as many feared would be the case when we started to see uh, a loss of life. We are still sadly seeing over 700 reported dead every day uh, at this point but at the same time officials too need to get people to stay at home for the next two to three weeks certainly and the weather is improving and frankly here in central London we've seen bustling streets that haven't been that way for the last fortnight or so. So we are likely to hear some specifics certainly people will be looking to see when the end date of these renewed measures are It was initially three weeks. Will it be three weeks again or reviewed during that three-week period? Unclear. But also to, yes, you say, an exit strategy as well. There isn't one, frankly, at this point. There have been some indications from a junior health minister that maybe a vaccine is required before social distancing can stop here. But at the same time, too, epidemiologists have repeated that idea. We're missing the key voice of the leader of the government, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, who is still recuperating from the disease himself and not, it seems, involved in the decision being made behind me, a key cabinet meeting due in just over an hour, Julia. So a very important day for the United Kingdom in terms of how it handles this, but it knows economic damage is accruing very fast uh, and they do need to tell the population exactly how they plan to get them back to normal, however slow that process may be, Julia. Yeah, just some degree of clarity I think would help just mentally for people, never mind anything else. Nick, very quickly, testing Where is the UK on testing and tracing? Very far behind where it needs to be. And by its own declaration, it has just under a fortnight to reach 100,000 tests a day. It seems to be somewhere in the region of about 20,000 a day or so, but it's a large leap. And still, I think even if you are able to test 100,000 on a daily basis, that doesn't get you to the point where you know who's had it, who has it currently, and therefore which part of the population you can put back to work. A massive challenge here because at the start, the UK government was less focused on testing, more focused on how much the population could safely get this before they started to lock it down. And they're, I think, reeling from the consequences of that right now. Julia? Yeah, like much of the world. Nick Payton-Walsh, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you. 
All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But up next, a huge problem for small businesses as the emergency loan program, the PPP, runs out of cash. We speak to the CEO of Intuit, one of the fintech firms set to distribute the funds. And putting President Trump's game changer to the test, we speak to the doctor leading one of the first clinical trials of the drug touted by the president as a potential cure. Stay with us. That's coming up. back to first move as we count down to the market open this Thursday. U.S. stocks still on track for a higher open this morning, despite new numbers showing that 5.2 million Americans filed for first-time jobless benefits last week. Just to add what we've seen now for the last four weeks, some 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment assistance since mid-March. In the meantime, stay-at-home stocks continue to outperform. Netflix and Amazon shares begin today's session at all-time highs. CEO Jeff Bezos of Amazon saying today that the company is building the facilities it needs to regularly test all employees for COVID-19. And therein lies the future, I think, at least for the big companies. Torsten Slock joins us now. He's chief economist at Deutsche Bank Securities. Torsten, always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Deutsche Bank's estimate for these uh, first-time unemployment claims was 8 million people. What do you make of the numbers that we saw today? And do your forecasts mean that more damage is, is still to come and significant damage? Well, the the news today is, of course, still terrible. Uh, the mm. job losses are enormous with millions of people still losing their jobs. There's a number of dimensions uh, that are very important when you think about the magnitude of these numbers. Uh, we have had significant issues with the state-level systems in terms of filing for unemployment benefits. A number of states uh, basically have not been able to process all the claims that have been coming in. Remember that in January, the level of jobless claims was 200,000. So that means that we have to, from systems that had to deal with the normal level of the two, three hundred thousand jobless claims, to suddenly dealing with into the five, six, seven million numbers. So that means, of course, that there's a lot of processing that goes a lot slower. We also had that the CARES Act, the fiscal package we got a few weeks ago, expanded eligibility. So it was expanding to contractors, to gig workers mm. and freelancers, and the systems were just not ready for that. So the bottom line is that the we see the number of costs coming down which is where it was the two weeks ago, but uh, it still is the case that these layoffs numbers are telling you that the unemployment rate is going to be, in our estimate, close to 15 to 20% here in April. Do you think that's the peak, Torsten? Because we've seen challenges with the Paycheck Protection Scheme, particularly for smaller businesses that represent around half of employment in the United States, saying, look, we still need to get our hands on the money. Even if we filed the application here, they have weeks of cash. They need money now. Is this the peak or could it get even worse? Well, a challenge on the Paycheck Protection Program, as you're mentioning, Julia, is that it has been a little bit slow in coming up and running. The Fed has just announced a few minutes ago that the facility that will be lending against the loans in the Paycheck Protection Programs is now fully up and running. But the bottom line is that if we are depleting the resources, as you also have been talking about the last few days as we speak in this week, well, then the risk is that we may not have resources to basically help small businesses and that could have serious implications also for the jobless claims numbers and the unemployment rate. 
over the coming weeks. So absolutely, there's a very significant connection between what's going on in the Paycheck Protection Program, supporting small businesses, whether that program gets more funding and is something that will continue to help, and what's going on in the labor market and the bad data that we're getting this morning from jobless claims. Jason Furman, former economic advisor to President Obama, told us last week that it could take five years to get the jobs market back to where we started, even if 50% of what we're seeing here in terms of claims are just people that have been furloughed and actually can get back quite quickly. It's getting the rest back. Does that make sense to you or do you think that's too long, that's too negative an estimate? That, that is a very long period. When you think about mm. the nature of this shock, I mean, a lot is being thrown at this to solve it, both from Capitol Hill and the politician, also from the Federal Reserve, in trying to limit the negative consequences. That being said, as we saw after the financial crisis, once the unemployment rate goes up, it always takes time for the unemployment rate to come down again. Even though they expect the unemployment rate to drop faster, I think what Jason Furman is saying, it does make sense that it will take longer time than what we all would hope for, that it would be having an unemployment rate that goes back to the 3.5% that we had in February, simply because a lot of people will be laid off and may not as easily come back, in particular if we have social distancing on airplanes, trains, buses, cinemas, concerts, where we no longer, from a regulatory perspective, will allow people to sit as closely. That means that there may no longer be the same level of activity in the economy that we had in February. And from that perspective, the behavioral changes on the part of consumers of being more cautious might on its own speak for a slower move down and before the unemployment rate comes back to anything what we would call normal again. Yeah, confidence, behavioral changes, all of these things matter. And I think that bring it, brings it back to what I mentioned just coming into this interview, which was Amazon saying, look, we're going to be creating the facilities to test our own people in-house in order to do that. We're not at a position on a nation level where we have the testing or the tracing capabilities anywhere near where they need to be. Torsten, what is your prediction at this moment for getting the economy back up and running in some kind of immediate rebound? Are we talking third quarter, fourth quarter? What are you even thinking at this stage and, and saying to clients? Yeah, so this is a very important question, of course, mm. in particular for markets. But the issue to that good question, Julia, is that we spend a lot of time studying what's going on in other countries that are already right. ahead of the U.S. And if you look at the number of new cases of coronavirus, it looks in very simple terms like Italy is about two weeks ahead of the U.S. So in that sense, the opening up that we're beginning to see very gradually in Italy, Germany and some of the other European countries, we literally this week seeing a few stores open. Some countries are kids going back to school. We in the U.S. be spending a lot of time in U.S. markets also studying, well, how is that functioning? Which businesses open up first? Which businesses are going to see cash flow come back first? Because this will be important for the answer to your question of what will the trajectory of this recovery look like? We all agree it will not be a V-shaped recovery, but how long time will it take before we get back to levels of production that are anywhere near what we had in February? And our answer is we probably have to get all the way to the end of this year before we get to a level of production, broadly speaking, at the economy level that is closer to what we saw in January and February of this year. Wow. Yeah, because it's got to be done in phases. Torsten Slock, great to have you with us, sir. Stay safe, please, the Chief Economist there at Deutsche Bank. Great to have you with us. Stay with us. The market opens next.
Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley, and we have U.S. stock markets up and running so far this Thursday, and we have a higher open on Wall Street. There's some words of warning from Goldman Sachs this morning saying stock markets have gone too far, too fast. We kind of agree, but then there is a wall of liquidity, of course, behind this that is incomparable in terms of size. In the meantime, U.S. President Donald Trump is announcing his guidelines for reopening the U.S. economy later today. Germany also will begin slowly reopening their economy next week. And I think that is instilling some optimism more broadly into these markets. But fresh numbers from the United States today, as we've discussed, show why it's so essential to begin this conversation. U.S. jobless claims rising by a further 5.2 million people last week. We are talking 22 million people filing for the first time for jobless benefits in just one month. Okay, and the faces, of course, of those people that are involved, small businesses, owners across the United States are facing the financial fallout and the cost of this. Vanessa Yurkiewicz has the latest. Everything was just was just prospering and just growing. Everything was actually really good. Business was great. But then for these small business owners, it all came crashing down. Like many businesses around the country, COVID-19 changed everything. It was like apocalyptic. It was the scariest day ever. Americans who are self-employed, gig workers, or freelancers can now apply for unemployment. World Caribbean, Anna Carnival, Castillo is MSC, one of them. Every- her family owns a cruise parking lot in Miami, but with no cruises, her income is zero. I mean, my parents have put blood, sweat, and tears into not only coming to this country and, like, building something for themselves, but in general, like, safe cruise parking was built from their savings from every penny they've ever worked for. How business works. Christina Mickens owns a PR company in Atlanta, and business is slow. As a single mom to a nine-year-old, she's the family's breadwinner. She hasn't heard back about her unemployment, and her rainy day fund is drying up. Sticking to the bare minimum, I would say by the end of April, maybe first two weeks of May, that'll be gone. Sales tax. Christopher Payne is in the same boat. The bills don't stop between now and then, and the money is rapidly running out. His gaming shop in North Carolina is a month away from shutting down. I applied for the PPP, the idle loan, the grant, and I've also applied for unemployment. Nothing has worked out at this point. With the backup in unemployment processing, Payne believes he's weeks away from a check. If the unemployment came through, I would be able to turn all of that money into you know, money that I would use for my business. 43% of small business owners say they have less than six months until they'll close because of COVID-19, according to a survey by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. For some, the pure will to survive could be enough. Failing is not something that's in my radar or even in the back of my mind when it comes to my business. I know I won't be that 40 to 50%. For others, the wound may be too deep. It's not just like the business, it's like the people behind it and everything that they do to provide a service to you and to make a living for themselves. So I would just say support your local businesses. Vanessa Yurkevich, CNN, New York. And this is happening around the world. But here in the United States, the Small Business Administration is urging Congress to provide more money for the Paycheck Protection Program as the pot of money allocated runs dry. 
TurboTax Maker Intuits, one of the fintech companies that's been approved to distribute government loans to small businesses. And joining us now is Intuit's CEO, Sassan Gudazi. Fantastic to have you on the show with us. Uh, so great to, um, great to get your insights. You joined at the weekend, you were finally allowed permission, and now the money's running out. What are you hearing from small businesses? And I'm sure you're also urging Congress to agree more money. Well, first of all, thank you uh, for having me. And, you know, we serve millions of small businesses and uh, most of who we serve actually have uh, five or less employees. And as you were talking about in your last segment, you know, folks have between one uh, to four weeks of cash. And we're now at that point where many small businesses um, are at the brink. And so we're actually delighted with uh, the money that uh, is being made available through both the stimulus checks and also the paycheck um, protection program. And so what we have done is we've launched a couple of offerings to really connect those that qualify for the stimulus check and the paycheck uh, protection program to get the money in the hands of uh, customers as soon as possible. Because you know these small businesses, particularly the ones that we serve that are the, really the heartbeat of the globe, uh, they behave like consumers and so they're available for both funds and we've got to get the money in their hands as soon as possible can you just tell me a little bit about the the small and as you say it's the smallest companies that you tend to cater to what the mix is in terms of diversity women minority groups because this is one of the holdups in congress it's that particularly the democrats say look we want to have more equality in where the loans are going is that what you as a fintech player help provide? Yeah, well, we, we see the diversity in our small businesses. Um, you know, almost half of the small businesses that we serve um, are, are led by uh, women and they're woman-based businesses. And we also see, you know, the same stats we see from a minority perspective, we see it in, in our base. And so this is really just about helping people, um, helping humankind. Uh, this, I think, the small businesses, you know, is an easy term uh, to hide behind. These are real people that drive 50% of our economy uh, around the world. They're responsible for 60% of the hiring. And as you were talking about in your last segment, I think we have to ensure that we can save small businesses because that will actually be the key to our economy coming back strong. How much lending capacity? Sesson, do you have and, and what's the average loan size just to give us a sense of what we're dealing with here? Because particularly for my understanding, for some of the medium to larger size banks, they don't cater to these kind of businesses either. They're, they're just not interested. So it is a, a separate subset of the business community that the fintech players target. Sure. Well, first of all, we just, if I use United States as an example, uh, we in essence serve, you know, one in 12 Americans uh, through our QuickBooks platform and particularly uh, in payroll. Um, and these customers, you know, that really the average loan is between 10 to $20,000. These, this is not a lot of money. This is just putting enough cash in their pocket for a couple of months so they can, uh, in essence, pay their employees and, you know, in essence, stay in business until the economy comes back. And these are the folks that truly are the heartbeat um, of the United States and countries uh, around the globe. And they're the ones that need the money the most uh, because they're the ones typically that may not have more cash than a week. Uh, and they're really struggling right now. And we believe that we can help them very quickly so they can at least keep their doors open until the economy comes back. 
Sassan, how many small businesses do you think already have decided, based on what you were saying about just how much cash they have, have already decided just to close and and won't be a, a continuing business going forward? And even in a best-case scenario, if we get more money, what proportion of small businesses do you think don't make it? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, from just our years of experience serving small businesses, they're fighters. Uh, they're dreamers, they're, they're passionate, and they will do whatever it takes to stay in business as long uh, as they can, because really uh, behind them are a few employees that they absolutely want to make sure uh, that they can help them maintain their jobs. And so they are fighters. They will do whatever it takes to the last penny until they have no more money left in the bank. What I would tell you is um, this very small ones, you know, many of them have already run out of cash. Uh, and they're just uh, piling debt on their credit cards, uh, borrowing money to be able to stay afloat. In fact, one of the things that we've launched, um, it's the Small Business Relief Program, where it's a crowdsourcing platform with GoFundMe. And this gives an opportunity to small business to be able to, um, in essence, get their friends and family and their customers to help raise the money. There was a local deli uh, right in Mountain View where our headquarters are that was in essence running out of money uh, and they needed $10,000 uh, for a few months uh, to in essence stay afloat. And within 24 hours, they raised almost $20,000 with wow. this crowdsourcing platform. So I use that as an example because everybody's trying to fight to stay in business. Yeah, it's community. It's about protecting the businesses and the people in your community at a desperate moment. Thank you so much That's for joining right. us. Stay in touch and let us know how you progress. And fingers crossed that more money is agreed in Congress this week and you can get that money out there. The CEO of Intuit there, Sassan Gudzazi. Stay safe, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Up next, the U.S. president hailed an anti-malaria drug as a potential treatment for coronavirus, but the medical community not quite as convinced. We speak to a doctor overseeing one of the first and largest clinical trials of the drug. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A little-known anti-malaria drug rocketed to fame when the U.S. president touted it as having, quote, great promise as a COVID-19 treatment. But hydroxychloroquine's effectiveness as a treatment for coronavirus has never been clinically proven. On Monday, South Dakota announced the first statewide comprehensive clinical trial of the drug, which will be led by healthcare provider Samford Health. Joining us now, Dr. Alison Suttle, she's chief medical officer at Stanford Health. Great to have you with us, Dr. Suttle. Thank you so much. It's a two-part trial. It's a trial testing those that actually have COVID-19, but also possibly as a preventative measure for those that don't, but are are exposed. Is that right? That's correct, Julie, and thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, The two parts to the trial are exactly what you said. The first part is really going back to the very beginning. We take a patient or a person who's been exposed to the virus and we give them hydroxychloroquine, and it's similar to taking a Z-Pack. It's a five-day dose, but it stays in your system for up to 50 days, and we're going to see and we're going to ask the question, does taking that hydroxychloroquine prevent you from getting the virus or does it lessen the symptoms of the virus? This trial could take up to five years. Is that correct? Because there are reports of trials that have been abandoned because of the side effects. There's reports. And of course, I mentioned the president has suggested it could even be a cure. What do we know today? 
Yes, so this trial that we're looking at prophylaxis, at trying to prevent the, the virus at all together, is actually going to have results within about six months. Wow. Um, because the virus has an incubation period of 14 days, after we enroll 2,000 patients, we'll have enough power to be able to tell if that prophylaxis is treating or not. The other side of the trial is the one that we'll be able to look out over the course of five years, and that's much more looking at the disease progression. What is the viral load based on different treatments? How long do the antibodies persist in the system? So that's much more looking at the disease progression. One of the aspects of this is just seeing how this anti-malarial drug suppresses the virus and allows the body's own immune system to fight this better. But in certain cases, we've heard that it's the body's own immune system that at times overwhelms the body in its efforts to fight. Do you have to be very careful about who you use this drug on? You know, I think that's a great point. And I do think so far we've used this antimalarial drug for all comers at all different stages of the disease. And I think what we're starting to piece out and what we're starting to refine is that this particular drug may have more benefit early on in the, the disease, preventing the virus from really starting the replication process. So that's why we're looking at other medications when there's that cytokine storm or when the body's getting overwhelmed by inflammation, there might be other medications that we need to use at that point in time. And what about people with existing conditions? Because, I mean, this drug has been in use since World War II, but I look at the list of um, potential um, issues it can create, arrhythmias, seizures, dermatological reactions, just at the very sort of limited end of the spectrum. Are there people that you simply won't give this to because they have pre-existing conditions? That's right. We have to be very careful with any medication. And I've been so impressed with our research team. They get together and start thinking about who are we going to treat? How are we going to treat? What medications will we use? And the first thing they say is we have to do no harm. So what are, what are the potential ramifications of using these clinical trials? And they're very careful with creating um, criteria at which exclusion criteria at which an individual would not be able to be on the clinical trial. Yes, because in the end, even if it's a life or death situation with the, with the virus and trying to help save somebody with the virus, in the end, if they have other conditions, you, you don't know what you're battling. That's right. You have to be very careful. Yeah. Dr. Alison Suttle, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And please keep in touch because we'd love to hear as you uh, progress with both of these trials. The Chief Medical Officer at Sanford Health there. Thank you so much, Dr. and Stay safe. Okay. Thank you. After the break, as we lock ourselves in at home, some of us are coming out with extraordinary feats of endurance. If you need a reason to be inspired today, we have it. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. Now, I know the number of coronavirus cases and the loss in life is horrific. And for many of us, the thought of our families or friends getting ill hovers constantly at the back of our minds. But spare a thought for those who are beating the odds. This is 106-year-old Connie Titchen, who is recovering from COVID-19. You can hear the applause as she was discharged from hospital in Birmingham, England. She was born in 1913. She's lived through two world wars and once again emerges as a survivor.
Do you remember earlier on this morning we was having a chat and do you remember I was telling you that you were the eldest person to have survived this nasty virus that's going round? Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you feel lucky that you've survived all of this? Yes, I'm unlucky. Yes, I do. Yes, I do really. Are you looking forward to seeing your grandchildren? Yeah. <laughs> You're looking forward to a nice spot of lunch and then go home? Yeah. Oh, and an amazing nurse there too. And then here is 99-year-old Tom Moore. As you can see by what he's wearing, he's a war veteran from Bedfordshire in England. He raised over $16 million for the UK's National Health Service by walking 100 lengths of his garden on a walking frame. We thought we'd been 100 years old if we did 100 walks up here and, and we might get £1,000. But then they seemed to got bigger and bigger and bigger till now. I don't know where, it just seems to go on and on. I mean, the, from a thousand pounds, we seem to go now into millions, which is rather a lot of money for somebody like me. But it's not for me, it's for the National Health Service. What a legend. $16 million. And the great news is you can hear from Tom Moore himself because he's live on CNN in the next hour. I think we can all learn a thing or two from those who fought adversity in the past and need our help more than ever right now. I will see you all tomorrow. Stay safe, please. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.